Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, as you know, uh, councilman in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs. But if you've listened to my podcast before, which I'm sure everyone here has, including my guest today, um, you know that I originally came from western Pennsylvania, Hampton Township, uh, and my guest today, actually, I went to high school with him, and uh, we are both Hampton Talbots, whatever that means. No one even knew when we were there. Um, but despite our young age, and I would consider us both young, even though we are in our early 40s, or we want to just call it late, late, late 30s, um, Bradley Sherman and I are, um, we have some different experiences in government and politics. He has worked with the AARP. He's worked on his own uh, as an entrepreneur and author, including the author of a great new book called The Super Age. And he's going to talk a little bit about what the graying of the world means, a super age, um, and he's a demographic futurist. And I think what he's got to say makes a lot of sense. It's very important. So, Bradley, thanks for talking today. Thanks for having me, Tony. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. Like, even though it's an audio podcast, we can see each other. <laughs> um, so, before we get into your book, uh, tell me a little bit about your background in this topic, because it's important, but I think people should know that you're not, you didn't just make this up out of whole cloth last week. No, certainly not. I, I, I think, um, as I mentioned in the book, I, my first kind of inkling that something was, was up was, um, when my grandparents got sick, mm-hmm. um, when they moved into nursing care and I would travel between Pittsburgh and DC, um, um, Hampton Township, as you mentioned to Washington DC, where I was at school at American university. And I would on that ride home, um, when I stopped in Breezewood in particular, and if anybody stopped in Breezewood, they know what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the prettiest place on the planet. Um, but the workforce in Breezewood would be, was, was significantly older than the workforce in DC or in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was whiter. Um, and it was jarring to see people who were in advanced age, you know, seventies, eighties, in some cases, working jobs that, that had typically been reserved at least growing up in a, in, in a community like Campton Township, um, really for teenagers. You know, these were fast food jobs, pumping gas. Um, it was jarring, to say the least. And I thought to myself, this doesn't make sense. Why is this happening here? And it became a bit of a, an obsession of mine mm-hmm. to figure out why this was like this in Breezewood and it wasn't like this in Pittsburgh. And what I found was... Um, that this aging of our society, this demographic transition that I had witnessed on that ride was actually happening in other countries at a much faster rate than the U.S., starting in a place, you know, starting in Japan, in Germany, in Italy. Um, it's happening throughout Western Europe, um, into Asia and the Americas today. The only place that's really avoiding, avoided um the big demographic shift is Africa that still somehow maintains incredibly high birth rates. But I've spent 20 plus years now in the field of demographics um, Mm -hmm. with a focus on population aging. And that's a very technical term for the collision of two megatrends. The first is that we're simply having fewer kids on average than ever before. The second is um, we're living longer than ever uh, in the course of humanity. So those two things collide to create a world that isn't just older, it's more generationally diverse. So against the backdrop of history, there were a lot of kids born. 
about half of them died before they made it to adulthood. Right. So population growth was relatively slow. Then we had this amazing period of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the second Industrial Revolution is where things really sped up, actually for infant and youth mortality. Born today can expect to live to adulthood. That's a pretty significant uh, achievement. Wait, can you say that statistic again? But what that there, was did a was bit of, there was a little bit of an audio hiccup. Can you just say that statistic again? Because it yep. really uh, perked up for me. Yeah, so uh, roughly 90%, you know, most kids die. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to figure out where we were. So 30, it, it, in 1900, you would say most of the kids that were born um, had a one out of three chance of making it to five and a one out of two chance of making it to adulthood. Okay, so with innovations that happened in water treatment, food production and safety, uh, getting kids out of the factories, in the fields and into schools, um, these all contributed to improving my young people so that they survive into adulthood. Right. And so now age, I'm, I'm sorry, I had an audio hiccup again. I don't like so from there. So you're right. So people could, um, people who traditionally might not have lived, you would have, I know, a bunch of family members, and it was not uncommon for someone to uh, only live to be a very young age, or they would be sick, or, you know, it, it was a very different experience, not even that long ago, like 100 years ago. Yeah, and, and uh, but when we solve for youth mortality, it actually caused a number of things to happen. It was kind of a domino effect. The biggest domino effect is that our global population exploded from a, a, a world that was home to about 2 billion people in 1900. That's home to about 8 billion people today. So everyone likes to talk about the environment and how we're putting such a strain on it. It's in large part because we <laughs> created an environment where kids could survive. Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 and social norms tend to lag behind scientific advancement. So when these scientific advancements are happening and my, my grandfather, 1914, born in the coal fields of Western Pennsylvania in the mines at 14 years old, he shouldn't have survived. All of his brothers and sisters survived until adulthood. And that is nothing short of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. At least half of them should have died, and frankly, considering their their economic position, it was probably closer to three quarters that that should have died before they reached adulthood. Wow, I, I think that people can't really fathom that today, and maybe that's part of our experience with COVID is that um, you know everyone gets really understandably upset when you're like, oh, most people with COVID pass away at an an older age or from other things, and and I. Trust me, I get it. I have. I don't like that take, that opinion that to dismiss anyone from dying. But for a lot of people, that does give them in certain communities a reason to be shrug their shoulders almost because their expectation of life mm -hmm. might be different than others in terms of the life expectancy and, and healthy life expectancy. Well, sure. And, and COVID was a complete misread uh, yeah. from the beginning. Let's be clear about that. Mm-hmm. This idea that, that COVID was a disease that only affected old people really put the blinders on. And that's that was messaging that came out, you know, uh, right front and center from right. the beginning. It was a bad it was bad messaging from day one. Mm -hmm. 
And what that did is it told younger populations, you know what, you're going to be okay. Blame the the more you know dramatic part of it, which was you know you could be a vector for the disease. You might be asymptomatic. You might be carrying this disease into your grandma's home, or if you're a healthcare worker, carrying it into the hospital or carrying it into a nursing home. None of that was explained up front. Um, we simply told old people, people over sixty five, that um, they were going to get it, and they if they, when they got it, they were most likely going to die, and that's just not the case. Right. Statistically, though, you know, do older people die at a higher rate than younger people? Yes, obviously. Like, that's just part of living a long life is that you're more likely to die. Um, but the the death rates for COVID, at least for people over the age of 65, uh, they mimic the same rate as, you know, uh, the flu or pneumonia. That's not to say that COVID is anywhere near like the flu or pneumonia. Right, Let me right, be abundantly right. clear about that. Right. It's saying that. In a bad flu season, you know, about 80% of the deaths are people over the age of 65. So COVID, it's about the same. So so you realize this this global population growth, and you've seen it in other countries and how it's affecting things. Maybe that's changing in America. Um, Do you think that's being realized in America now? That was that was you said in Japan and other places. Yeah, no, I I, I, I I think it's clear as day that it's happened in America now. It just depends on where you sit in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're a big place, and the and when you look at America in terms of averages, it obscures some of the realities that yeah. sit within our. I mean, for for the folks that really listen to this podcast, you know, folks that live in congressional or even state districts, um, it obscures the realities of what's going on in the ground there. You know, there are four states in the United States that are already classified as super-aged societies, Mm -hmm. and those are the states of Maine, Vermont, West Virginia, and Florida, which should not come as no surprise to anybody. Mm -hmm. But there isn't calamity that's happening in these places. They're adjusting quite remarkably to the change, and that means in a lot of cases that people will have to work longer than they did before. Um, in order to keep society humming along. Um, I spent part of the fall in in Maine outside of Booth Bay Harbor, and I was taken by the sheer number of women and men well into their 60s actively working in restaurants and stores, uh, just about in all parts of the Maine economy. They were there. And that's what our future is going to look like. It's going to be a lot grayer. I certainly think that if you traverse this country, you go into some of the smaller towns in rural America, you're going to see places that have been hollowed out by population change, by demographic change. Um, Rural counties in particular have been hit hard by a number of different prevailing trends, whether they be globalization, automation, digitization, uh, outward migration, thanks to to, um, uh, urban... population loss and and the 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 fact that it's very hard to own and operate a family farm anymore um what you have in most of these rural counties now is a very old population um incredibly old population and what that means for the country kind of in a macro sense is that smaller states rural counties have a larger say in bodies like the senate um in elections like the presidency Mm -hmm. 
And because of that, you know, it's really made an imbalance where the electoral college map doesn't necessarily line up with the popular vote count. And you talk about the um, these areas that are getting older and these towns. Uh, you mentioned Breezewood, for example, and I know mm-hmm. it very well from driving from Philly to Pittsburgh. Yep. Um, and one thing I remember growing up in Pittsburgh, and it's changed there a lot, is there was a uh, talk about a brain drain, an exodus of young people uh, to uh, other cities, to Philadelphia, to New York, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And... Some of that, I think, is there was an idea that, well, this place, whether it is Pittsburgh or other places, is less desirable if you're younger, right? Sure. I don't, is that, do you think that is true or it's just the, the, the demographic changes in terms of birth rate and people getting older or, or is more of the impact? Uh, well, I think on the, on the, well, I think there's a couple different pieces. If we're talking specifically about Pittsburgh, um, Pittsburgh got a pretty terrible. What's that? And that's changed a lot, right? Because Pittsburgh's become younger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pittsburgh has has kind of solved for some of its age-related challenges, mm-hmm. um, and that's because of inward migration, mm-hmm. people coming into the to the to the to the city. Um, that's because of a booming tech sector. That's because of a, a incredible health and education sector. You know, people tend to go where jobs are. Um, as crazy as that is, they go mm. where work is, where they can make money. Right. And if governments invest in the right way, and and I, I mean, we grew up in that period of investment for 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 the Pittsburgh, Greater Pittsburgh region, Allegheny County in particular, where there was just an overwhelming investment in education, in the health, in technology, and all of those benefits. You know, forty some years later, are now being reaped. You know, Pittsburgh is a hub for places like Google and Facebook and Uber, and uh, local governments can really take advantage of of change if they're willing to make those those incredible investments. Now, of course, there's there's incredible competition because um, we you know these different localities are are shrinking. Some of them are shrinking, and some of them are are being erased, quite frankly, just off the map. Um, the fur- further rural com- communities there are, the, the less likely they are to survive at the end of the day. You know, it reminds me, as you're talking about the quote, the uh, meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. And I know that's mm-hmm. happened in Pittsburgh and to places where an, an aging community recognize that. But we also see a lot of communities where people almost don't want to accept that change, right? Like, Right. So, um, <laughs> and, and I'm concerned with what you're saying. Not that you're wrong, you're, you're right, but that yeah. um, you have these communities that are aging and they don't want to change or invest, and that ends up help harming the populations that, that exist there, right? Because if you yes. don't bring in people, you don't have the health care for the aging communities. Yeah, well, I mean, there. Uh, this, is, this is awfully uh, kind of a difficult pill to swallow, but there are some places that won't evolve, and they will die. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the nature of, of, of communities. I mean, right. there are, there are ghost towns, you know, smattered across the West. There are some ghost towns in, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, that exist and they exist because either the jobs dried up or the resources dried up or the people dried up. I mean, one of any, many number of things can dry up and go away for cities though you know they have an opportunity to compete for for towns that are relatively close to cities they have an opportunity to compete as well 
it's the it's the furthest out communities that are really struggling right now. Um, obviously, there's exceptions to every rule, but this lack of investment um, in the future has been a real hallmark of the past uh, um, few years, uh, few decades rather. And it's it's scary because these critical investments that we need for infrastructure and healthcare and um, education, if we don't have them in place, we can't compete as a country. Uh, forget the local, forget the local economies. Like we can't compete as states against states. We can't compete against nations against nations. We're doing ourselves a great disservice by eroding um, some of the foundational elements that do make America great. Oh, and one of the things that's always made America great is people stepping up to be leaders. And right. one of the reasons I was actually excited for you to talk about this is I talked to a lot of younger people running for office. It's one of the mm-hmm. things I'm encouraged for. People younger than me, there's, um, now that I'm 41, I know members of Congress who are younger than me, and that's great. You know, mm-hmm. I, my my new mayor who was sworn in, she's like 30, and that's really good. Um, but there is a huge age discrepancy in public office. Yep. And that is with older people, they vote in greater numbers than younger people, but that has an impact on policy, mm-hmm. right? Like, do you see that from your writing the, the policy implications of this trending age gap? Well, uh, let's be clear. Uh, our, our attitudes towards older people, especially in how they govern, um, have always been, um, have leaned positive at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. We tend to, as Western societies at least, really embrace age as a qualifier for job, but not too old. Old, but not too old. <laughs> cool but not too cool smart but not too smart we like having people in power that have experience that 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 sits grounded in the world that we live in part of the challenge is is that it's starting to look like a gerontocracy and you know when you take a look at some of the the ages of the leaders they're so far off from the median age of the country the president's what 79 years old the speaker of the house is 82 um this isn't a bad thing, but the median age of the country is still 38. So there's a big disconnect between the age of the people that are serving in the national bodies and the age of the actual electorate. Now, we're electing these folks, so uh, that's on us mm-hmm. at the end of the day. But you're absolutely right. Older populations do vote at a higher rate. They do, um, and they do show up at primaries which is where elections are made in many districts now because of the, the gerrymandered system. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, um, there are some challenges to overcome, but I think that this, there is no greater period, no greater period of importance for younger people to get involved in politics than today. Um, there is a need for uh, great change there is a need for a greater understanding of some of the prevailing trends that are that are coming our way. Um, one of the three trends that I've pointed out for my own company in, in 2022 is the metaverse and how it will completely remake um, virtually every aspect of our lives, much in the same way that the internet has. And I think if you talked about the metaverse to an average member of Congress or the Senate, they'd look at you cross-eyed. Um, they struggle in many cases with the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, So it isn't an age thing. I don't want to be ageist in any way, but there is a disconnect perhaps generationally, 
perhaps in digital literacy with understanding some of these tech trends that are really going to hit us hard. I also think that there's an empathy gap um, between um, the boomers and uh, younger generations, especially between you know boomers and millennials, I think to some to a larger degree, maybe boomers and Gen Z, what drives these different groups? Um, I suppose the first thing is generational markers are not perfect. Um, mm -hmm. Let's be clear about that, but they are they give us some kind of picture into the world that we live in. And the narrative that boomers were handed everything and were left and are leaving nothing behind is not terribly far off. Um, younger people are struggling today. And when I hear, when I hear people say, as one, one, one person I work with quite closely says often, and she's a boomer, says, you know, the bank of mom and dad has to open up again. Mm -hmm. Well, the bank of mom and dad exists because the institutional uh, organizations that gave support for education, gave support for housing, gave support for health care, no longer exist, not in the way that they used to. For young people, there is no greater period in time to get involved and design the world that you want to live in because we have no choice but to change now. Our populations are completely topsy-turvy, um, certainly unlike anything in the history of humankind. And with that comes uh, a clarion call for leaders to step up and help design the world they want to live in and the world that they want their kids to live in and their grandkids to live in and every generation after them. So yes, there is a great opportunity here and we do need more people like you um, stepping up. Now you talked about um, generational inclusion and I mm -hmm. think that's a really great phrase and it goes both ways, right? Like um, your older leaders, like you said in Congress, making sure that younger people like let's say Senator Ossoff, or if he wins, uh, Sen he would be Senator Connor Lamb, who's younger than me, and okay. um, him being included, and, uh, and vice versa, where if you have younger groups, making sure we have these older voices included, because I think there's a lot missing. How would that generally generational inclusion work for governing and politics? That's, I think that's something that's still very much hotly debated right now, how it would work in a perfect world. You know, mentorship is one of those things that, that exists and is, and is good when it's used well. I certainly think less about the electoral map mm -hmm. when thinking about generational inclusion and think more about the, um, the way in which our governments are administered through the bureaucracy, through the, the eight various agencies. You know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that's there. We should be bringing young men and women into the fold um, and taking the experience of those older workers that may have served in government for 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more and pairing them up with younger people um, more often. Um, when we think about developing services uh, as, a, as an elected leader, you know, developing services or, or policies, you know, considering the needs of um, the most frail, the most in need, often help the younger populations as much, if not more. I certainly think from a policymaking standpoint, too, you know, considering how to encourage people working long to work longer um, is, a, is an essential component to our long-term survival, economic survival. And, you know, you say that as a good thing. And I, I think for so long, people would say, Oh, people working until their seventies is a negative, but yeah, that's hooey. 
And I, you know, to me, my dad recently retired and he's home and I can't understand it because my dad can't sit still for five minutes and he's only 67 years old. Yeah. I'm not saying he needs to get a job, but he should get a he job. He needs to get yeah. a job. He needs to get out of the house. <laughs> Whereas my mother-in-law is 75 almost and she works at least part-time and does, she's more active professionally than my parents are. Yeah. Um. So you're saying that working until 75 is no longer something to see as a vice or a negative or a failure. No, it's, it's a positive. Yeah. Um, it's just like saying, you know, it's just like saying, saying something pejorative about a woman who has a baby when they're in their Mm forties. Like, why is that a problem? Like she's having a child. Like that's a cool thing. Working later in life is a cool thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, it's and it's also something that's good for you. And I know this might sound counterintuitive, but it's working longer is good for everybody. And that may sound like some Pollyanna BS, but let me tell you something. Working longer is good for everybody. It's good for the individual and it's good for the economy. As an individual, if you stay working longer, you're staying financially healthier than you would would be otherwise. You're also staying mentally fit, cognitively fit, and physically fit mm-hmm. because you're connected to a place where you're engaged, and where you most likely have purpose. For government, and this is very important for government, if people are working longer, they're paying taxes longer. If they're working longer, they're not going on to their pensions and public savings. They're staying active consumers, which gins up the economy. Everybody wins when people work longer in life. And the reality is, Tony, prior to like 1964, when the first boomers really start to come into the workplace, that's the way the world was. Men and women worked later in life. And they worked as long as they could. In fact, the word old is something that we ascribe to people who could no longer do for themselves. Mm. We bastardized that word. We took it and we said, we're just going to apply that to everyone over the age of 65. And then it started to creep down where people who were in their 50s were old. People who were in their 40s were old. And that was crazy. That was absolutely insane. Um, Old means you can't do anymore. Old means you essentially become the ward of somebody. And we need to embrace that old definition of old Mm -hmm. um, if we're going to get ahead. Because stopping working is nuts. It's just nuts. I mean, Bob Saget just died, and he's 65. And I think it was good in a way that our view of that was, that is terrible. And also, no one one said, oh, well, he was 65, so that makes sense. Like, most everyone said, he shouldn't, that's terrible. Like, the, the, no one. I know. And that's, like, if I hear someone being dead at 65 now, I think that that is horrible. It's too young. Early. I Mm-hmm. I am 41. I expect to live at least another 41 years, if not more. Mm-hmm. I'd like to live to be 100. And I think that, you know, when we were young, it was not necessarily the assumption that you would live to be 100. That was kind of like a major achievement. Whereas now... It was huge. Now it was it's huge. kind of like the assumption, like, I'm that is my goal is to live to be 100. And to live to be 100 is not just a number. It's hopefully you're living productively as long as possible. Yes. I... We want to stay as healthy and as active as we can. And we also want to be focused on, you know, compressing our morbidity, Mm -hmm. which is a very fancy way of saying shorten the number of years we're sick at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And that should be an aspirational goal for all of us. Um, I don't know about you, but I hate being sick. Like, so I look at work. um, I look at, you know, staying active. 
as all very good things um, that build up over time to actually compress this morbidity so that when it's time for me to get sick, I get sick and I die very quickly. So that is a different de definition of old. And I think that's something to be celebrated and cheered um, because I, I don't want to give up working necessarily. I fill out like a, a retirement plan. They're like, Oh, what age do you expect to retire? And, do you think, do you think people, this is something I was actually thinking of as you're talking is you worked for AARP, which is the Association for Retired Persons. Do you right. think the way we talk about being older, the language we use is going to have to shift? Um, yes, no, no doubt it has to shift. The reality is it's already shifting. Mm -hmm. um, there are simply market demands that are changing our attitudes towards older populations, but it's not happening in a way that seems very fast. Mm -hmm. um, ageism is one of the few biases um, that we tend to lean into almost with glee. Um, we all love to make fun of people who are older than us. Um, we've all done it. Mm -hmm. We've all made fun of ourselves um, when we have, you know, uh, an ache in our back or we forget our keys. We say it must be a senior moment. And that's just silly. Um, age is not a predictor of those things. Um, age is, in fact, just a number. I'm not sure that sounds trite, but it's a measure of how many times you've traveled around the sun. It in no way measures your physical abilities, your mental acuity. Um, it is a silly, silly way to judge someone. Um, there are, of course, a whole other slew of things that come along with ageism. Um, there's lookism, um, there's gendered ageism or sexism mm -hmm. um, that, that shows up. Um, but there are trends for all that, all that exists. There are really some interesting trends where older women in particular, and men have always had a license to get older for the most part, especially right. if they stay healthy and, and financially secure. But women have not had that. In fact, that for most of human history, uh, women have been cast to the sidelines because they've gotten older because they were no longer able to have children. Well, that is changing quite quite quickly now. I think you've got a whole new slew of influencers. We can thank social media for this. Women who are well into their 80s, some in their 90s, and even 100 plus now that are influencing younger women in particular around fashion. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to see an emerging group of people that are emerging around finances um, we're starting to see an emerging people around cooking. I mean, all of these older folks who just five or 10 years ago, before social media was really massive, massive, um, we would have never heard of them. We would have never seen them. Maybe you would have passed a woman on the street in New York City and said, ah, oh, her style's so cool. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you would have had that off chance to have a meal in some Tuscan hill town and this nonna makes the meal from scratch right in front of you and say, oh, that was the best meal I had. Now they're on TV. Now they're on YouTube. Right. Now they're on Instagram. And what's amazing about these older women in particular is it's not old, other older women that are following them. Mm -hmm. I was gonna... It's young women. Right. It's young women because they show, they show an aspirational and attainable view of the future what they can get to. And I think that's really cool. Um, 
well, some ageism exists, you know, in perpetuity, probably. Mm-hmm. Racism is still here today, despite all of our all of our attempts to fix it. Sexism still exists. Homophobia, transphobia are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to break that wheel. Um, it's not good for us. It costs us money. Um, Becca Levy out of Yale University suggested in a study about a year and a half, two years ago now, that healthcare costs alone this country because of ageism are in like the $67 billion mark. I mean, that's nuts. And ageism costs our national economy too. So we have to, we have to tackle it. And, and public policy is one lever we can use to, to um, break people of this bias, but it's not the only one. I, I really like how you talk about being elderly or being of an older age, whatever the word is we're going to be using, mm-hmm. um, can be aspirational. It reminds me of like uh, hip hop videos and songs from the early the '90s and early 2000s that they created an aspirational vision for certain groups of people, and that's a positive sure. thing. Absolutely. I mean, we all want something to look forward to, and you know, there is no, there's no, there's no one image that I that I least aspire to than walking hand in hand down a beach. And like, that's the only image of, of there was that image and the image of, of dying that were the images of getting old in this country up until not that long ago. You know, the, the, the couple walking down the beach in the sand hand in hand, maybe a grandkid in tow mm-hmm. or, um, you know, dying in a bed, um, relegated to a wheelchair. Like these are the images of aging that we saw either one or the other and neither one looked that great. Today, you know, again, thanks to the explosion of social media, we're seeing people that look like us and act like us that just happen to be an advanced age. Mm -hmm. And that is really helpful for, you know, kind of our own psyche um, around getting older. Now, um, I really don't want to leave you without asking this question because it comes up a lot in my discussions with younger people on policy is climate change. And so I know we're not going to tackle climate change and everything in the next five minutes, but, um, but it's a a very important issue. Yeah. So, you know, you have people like, you like you said, Congress is made up of leadership that is in their seventies and eighties and younger people in office or activists are like, we are the ones that in 30 years are going to have to deal with the impact of this. And you Mm -hmm. are the ones who that's not your top priority because, you know, just by the nature of things, you might not be dealing with it. How do we bridge that gap and be inclusive of all people? Yeah, it's a great question, Tony. You know, BLM, Black Lives Matter, was actually a good litmus test for this Mm -hmm. around building um, generationally diverse coalitions. And coalitions always have to be diverse to really be successful. But I think on an issue like climate change, this is one that that is of of high import. The first is because younger generations are going to have to deal with the, the, the climate change that's that's here. But it doesn't mean that some of the significant ramifications of the early days of um, mass weather events haven't already started. And in these mass, you know, these mass casualty events with hurricanes and flooding and tornadoes, and I mean, the list goes on and on. There are older people are typically the ones who are 
who are, or the oldest old, I should say, are typically the ones that are most vulnerable in these situations. So there is a kind of interesting way of straddling this. But when I mentioned BLM, it's in large part because the coalition that came together around BLM was intergenerational. It was multi-generational. And there was some data collected around the protests, and it found that the majority of protesters were either young, young, you know, young millennials, Gen mm-hmm. Z, or they were old, old. The people that kind of sat out of BLM um, were people that are that were our age. Was, it wasn't that we weren't there. It's just it wasn't a priority for, for our age group to be in those protests. But it was interesting to see two groups of people that you didn't think would get along marching together hand in hand. And I think there's hope. Uh, again, not to be too overly Pollyannish, um, there is hope here that young people can bridge a coalition or build a coalition with older populations to help address the climate crisis. You know, I, I uh, as you said something, I was writing down some notes. That's you know, if I look away on the video cameras because it's uh, it's interesting what you're saying. Um, Sidney Poitier just died, and. Yep. People were talking about all of the great things he did for civil rights and and the the thing the barriers he broke down the the risks he took. Do you think? And I think part of the the problem with um, discussions on race is that people talk about everything as a failure. When bringing in the intergenerational um, coalition building, you have people who were in those battles who could talk about the successes and the sacrifices. Sure. You know, Sydney was he as an actor, an accomplished one. He sacrificed a lot. Do you th- is that something hopeful in that generational bridging that we can do to to bring people in who won things to yeah. hopefully motivate the doomerists among us? Yeah, <laughs> you know, we deal with everything so much today is built around a news cycle. It's short lived. Mm-hmm. It's sporadic. That we've lost a grasp of history, and people that have had that lived experience can bring that history to us in living and breathing form. I find in my work in particular that it is not grounded. It's never been grounded without having a perspective of somebody significantly older than me and somebody significantly younger than me. That helps balance out my own point of view. I can't say enough about the value of experience, especially good experience, and especially the experience that says we did have incremental steps that we took that we made, we had successes, we had failures, this is what worked, this is what didn't. Those learnings can contribute to future successes and future endeavors, especially around the the major issues of the day, be it race or climate in particular. Well, I appreciate that. And and you're talking about the future. You are a demographic futurist, as you would say. And I think people should really check out this book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Um, Bradley, where can people learn more, get the book, follow you? Yep. I think if you want to find us, you can find me and my team at thesuperage.com. The book is, of course, available at um, virtually every retailer, but certainly you can find it on Amazon quite quickly. Um And of course, if you'd like to connect with me on a more regular basis, I'm most active on LinkedIn, surprise, surprise, at Bradley Sherman. That's S-C-H-U-R-M-A-N. It's the last civil platform to (laughs) Whatever it takes. There's a first for everything. Um, Every time I get a LinkedIn update, I'm like, oh, no, who lost their job? And they're like, oh, wait, no, it's just celebrate a work anniversary. 
Um, I learned a lot talking with you today, Bradley, and I am I'm encouraged by your writing, and I, I encourage everyone who's listening uh, to check out The Super Age. I think that it will be worth your time and your investment of time as well. So uh, thank you and best of luck in everything you're doing, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it.